Good morning again. Our Bible reading this morning is two actually, uh, one from Luke and one name. from Matthew. Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever hears, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Let's pray. Once again, Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together to honour you in song to approach you in prayer and to listen to you through your word read and taught. We ask, Lord, that you might be pleased to speak to us now through those readings, through those portions of your word, that you would enlighten us, increase our understanding and its implication as well as its application to our lives. Help us to be disciples not in name only, but in deed and in the habits and in our lifestyle. So speak to us, Lord. Shape us, we pray to better reflect Jesus. We ask and pray in his name. Amen. Um, I'm not sure why I've been asked to do this, but I was asked to talk about the special members meeting, and Charlie's already done that, so it's on what date? Good. See you then. Our topic this morning is going to be making disciples. Pastors have been, uh, the pastoral staff have been talking for quite a while, as well as the pastoral team occasionally, about the whole theme of being disciples and uh, the pastoral team received a letter from 
the young adults or some of the young adults and some other folks in our church and they were writing about their concern that we as a church had perhaps gotten off focus, gotten off track a little bit and that the Bible was really teaching us very clearly that we're here, the purpose of our church is to make disciples. So we've been talking about that and uh, gearing up for it and this year particularly we want to, not just this year, but this year in particular we want all of our ministry areas to evaluate yourself against that criteria. Are you making disciples? Are you in the process of making disciples? Is that why you exist? If that's not what you're trying to do or if that's not what you're progressing, then we'll have to look very seriously at having that as part of the life of our church. It's very easy for us to get distracted. So that's going to be our theme and our focus for this year. Our mission statement, of course, which I talk about every beginning of every year and sometimes throughout the year, yeah, why not? Our mission statement is... Working with God in transforming people into passionate followers. Oh, we get that bit. <laughs> we come home with the strength, passionate followers of Jesus. <clears throat> it's very carefully and theologically uh, put together it's quite deliberate and each of the words is significant it's working with God it's not something we do in our own strength Jesus doesn't say go do this and then leave us to do it no 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 he goes ahead of us and he does it he enables us to be doing it as we'll come to see in just a moment <clears throat> it's working with God in what in transforming people God's concerned that people change people need to change they need to be transformed that's us but everybody out there needs to be transformed. We're all broken, we're all bruised, we're all off track. And Jesus has sent, came and is sending us to help people get back on track into a right relationship with him. That's transforming. From being uh, disinterested to being interested, from being interested to being converted, a follower of Jesus, from being a new follower to being a growing follower, to being, becoming a, a, a mature follower. And then from being a mature follower, well, then you'll go back and you'll be in touch with people who are disinterested as well as interested. <clears throat> Rhonda and I have been intentionally targeting our neighbourhood and uh, the, one of our neighbours next door, she goes to Hillsong, he's not converted uh, and we had them and we were having our other neighbour around for barbecue last night and for whatever reason the neighbour two doors down didn't turn up so we've got to follow him up but we had them around and it's with a view of building a, net, uh, a bridge, that's all it is, of building a bridge to try and have a conversation at some point in God's time to give them an invitation to the Billy Graham crusade they'll all get one of those but really just to have a conversation about where are you at and how's life and doing it together and God has placed us in that location and so we figure that's what our role is as well as other contacts and networks that we all have so that's our mission statement and it's about transforming people into being passionate followers about Jesus passionate we use the word passionate not in the romantic erotic sense but passionate in terms of it occupies you. <clears throat> some people are passionate about soccer. I have no idea why, but some people are. And you can tell they're passionate about it because they talk about it, they talk about it with interest, they talk about it with a focus, they devote time and energy to it. Some people are passionate about, and you put in the gap. What is it? Some people are passionate about the NFL. And the Super Bowl is on tomorrow, for those of you who are not aware. <laughs> What are you passionate about? Well, one of the things the person we are supposed to be passionate about as disciples of Jesus is Jesus. 
passionate about him, in love with him. That's our mission statement and that's certainly going to be part of our focus and direction for this year. In the passage that David read to us, which is the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, you can see there in the words that all authority has been given to him and he gives us his final instructions, which five times is recorded for us in the New Testament, the end of each of the Gospels and once in Acts. The Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, I'm leaving you here and this is what I want you to do. It's the marching orders of the church. It's true for every local church on the planet, interdenominationally, every local church. This is the mission of the local church. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe, teach them to do everything that I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you, the promise, till the end of the age. So what's the product? We are to make disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple, it's the Holy Spirit's favourite word for a follower of the Lord Jesus. It's used 297 times in the NIV, in the Gospels and Acts. After Acts, the word's not used. It becomes saints or believers or some other such designated word. But the word disciple is the Holy Spirit's certainly favourite word. What does the word disciple mean? Go and make disciples. That's the verb and the command in the Great Commission. It means a student, a learner. It's somebody who submits to the instruction of another with a view to being trained and equipped. You place yourself under their authority. You're like an apprentice. You're not only being given head knowledge. Head knowledge alone is dead knowledge. You're being given head knowledge in order that you can do something. Be transformed it's in our heads and in our hearts and it comes into our hands through our actions and it's to be part of the habits of our life disciples of people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior they're seeking to learn from him to obey him to follow him he becomes the master of their life we learn from him in order that we can become like him now you've heard all of this many many times John chapter 8, verse 31, the Lord Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. If you continue in my word. Or John 14, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and you will receive it. And so you will become my disciples. So it's linked with continuing in his word. It's linked with abiding in him and praying and receiving from him they're the disciples or John 15 verse 8 by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples the fruitfulness the product of our lives that's the product that Jesus wants us to be focused on in every dimension of our life not just on Sundays not just in kids church or youth or young adults or connect groups or any other ministry of our church or any other day of the week it permeates the whole lot, all of life, as we see in that passage at Luke 14, which we're going to come to. That's the product. What's the process? Well, Jesus outlines for it in the Great Commission. It's go. And that's not a command. It's a participle. It's a subset of making disciples. It's wherever you go, in every aspect of your life, as you go, make disciples. Wherever you are, make disciples. With whatever you do, make disciples to be on the lookout for doing that in every avenue that God places you. When a person becomes a follower, a believer, then it's baptised them. 
Help them make a public declaration of their faith that they belong to, to Jesus and his people and they're following him. And then teach them. Go, conversation, lead people to Christ. Help them make a public confession of faith and then continue to teach them. It's an ongoing process of learning. It's not this sudden, we know everything at the beginning and then we flatline. It's rather we continue to learn and grow as we move forward. That's the process. Who were the key players in the disciple-making process? The Holy Spirit who goes before us. You, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, in all of your relationships. And it's you praying like we're praying for our neighbours. It's you praying that God will be working in their lives and hearts and convicting them and drawing them to himself. And open my eyes, Lord, that I can see the opportunities you give me to have conversations with them. So the Holy Spirit goes before us. We participate in him, but we don't do it alone. Part of the key players is the church as well. We do this together. That when a person becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus, they become part of the community of God's people. That's what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you. To love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. So the church becomes a key player in the discipling process. A healthy church. And then finally, the pattern that we've spoken about numerous times over the last 15, 16 years. There is uh, 1 John chapter 2 talks about this process. We're very familiar with it physically. Well, the Bible talks about it spiritually. That you are born, that you are a baby or a toddler, a child, that you're a young person. Then what's next? You're an adult. So spiritually, John tells us, 1 John 2, there are people who are at this stage of life, they're newborn, they're a child in the faith. Then there are people who are young people in the faith, they're becoming adults, they're more mature than child, but they're not yet mature. And then there are adults, those who are becoming mature followers of the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle John in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, outlines for us certain criteria where you can evaluate what stage you're at and making certainty of it. That's the universal pattern of that which we follow. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. The author of Hebrews writes and says to a group of people who should have been adults... You've been following Christ now for a number of years and you should be at this level, but you need someone to teach you again the very first principles of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what the author is saying to these Christians back then. They had started, they'd been following for a time, but they weren't growing, they weren't developing, they had flatlined, they had plateaued. And as he writes, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. In the second reading, sorry, in the second reading, Luke chapter 14 Jesus is quite blunt. He's just given the parable of the great banquet where this person's putting on a great banquet and prepared for it and has invited all these people to come. And when the invitations went out, they began to make excuses. Sorry, I just got married, I can't come. Sorry, I just bought a cow, I can't come. Sorry, I just bought a piece of land, I'm going to go, I can't come. They've got all these excuses. And the guy, the master who's putting on this banquet, then sent his servants out in, go and invite anybody and everybody. They go out into the streets and the byways and they go out and they do that invitations and people come. But still there was, there was room. So he sent them out again and invited people to come. And in the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, just before this passage, Jesus is saying, nobody is excluded except those who exclude themselves. But then large crowds started following Jesus. John chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was 
um, baptizing and making more disciples than John the Baptist. That wasn't Jesus himself who was baptizing, it was his disciples. Large crowds, hundreds of people started following Jesus, perhaps thousands. And Jesus always did this. Whenever he got a large crowd of people following him, he became very concerned that they weren't just emotionally connecting and or following the crowd. He wanted them to think about it and count the cost. That's primarily what he's going to do in this passage and that's where we're going this morning. Jesus says three times in this passage, verse 26, you cannot be my disciple. He in fact says, if you don't hate. The words are stark, they're shocking, they're terrible, but they're deliberate. They're meant to be provocative. If you don't hate your mother, your father, your wife, your brother, your sister, your children, you cannot be my disciple. He can't mean that. What does he mean? We'll have a look at it. In verse 27, second time he says it, unless you take up your cross and deny yourself and come follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And then finally, verse 33, unless you give everything, you cannot be my disciples. Three times Jesus says, you won't make the grade. And he's doing that because he wants people to stop and to think. In the parable of the four soils, the Lord Jesus spoke about two soils, the second and the third one in particular. They were people who heard the gospel, heard the message, and then responded to it. They received the word. But then because they didn't go deep, when trouble arose, when there was persecution, they gave up. Or in the third soil, it's they became concerned about the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth, and they gave up. Jesus had seen too many people give up. John chapter 6, it's a very provocative chapter if you read it through. People came to Jesus, he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and the Son of Man coming down from heaven and they said, this is very difficult. He said, you think that's hard? Listen to this. And then he just provokes them even further. He's not provoking them to drive them away, he's provoking them to think about it. Which makes sense to us in every other aspect of life. If I had a young man come and knock on our front door and my daughter was living at home and he said to me, I want to marry Kate, <laughs> what would I say? Think about it. You've got to get to know her. You've got to know what that means. So too and especially when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't send us to make decisions. He sends us to make disciples. People who know what it costs and know what it means and they're prepared to pay the cost. That's what he desires and requires of us. In this chapter, Luke chapter 14, the Lord Jesus taught that allegiance to him takes precedence over all other commitments. I asked somebody during the week, one of our pastors, I was thinking about this. I said, do you ever hate your wife? And he said, sometimes. It wasn't the answer I was expecting. And he was being a little bit facetious. Then I told him that I would share that. And then he said, you better be ready for people to come to you at the end of the service. And say, who was it? Not telling. Jesus wants us to count the cost. 
Jesus wants you to calculate the impact of what it means to follow him before you follow him. He wants you to anticipate the reactions of what other people will do and that you're prepared to take that on. You're to consider the consequences of what it means to be a follower of his and of your decision to follow through. You know, do a risk assessment, if you like, of it and to be prepared for the associated preparations. Jesus takes this very seriously. This is one of those passages we like to jump over. This passage, only in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 10, it's the same passage. My best friend at high school was a guy called Tony in senior high school, years 11 and 12. Tony was a nice guy, but Tony wasn't a Christian. And I became a Christian in my last year at high school. And in my last year at high school with Tony, he, um, he saw the change in me. And we got talking about it on numerous occasions. And one time I gave him a New Testament, the good news for modern man back in those days. And he took it home one weekend to read it. He got up to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, if you don't hate mother, father, brothers, sisters, or your own wife or your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He closed the New Testament, never read it anymore. Brought it back to me, gave it to me on Monday, opened it. I said, how'd you go? He opened it, he read that to me. He says, if that's what Jesus means, no deal, not interested, not doing it. Tried persuading him, tried talking to him. That's not what Jesus meant. What Jesus meant is this, uh, but the door had bolted. But he was doing exactly what Jesus wanted. Think about it. Work out what it's going to cost and then you decide if you're going to buy or not. Verse 26 is indeed a shocker. That's the one where you have to hate your father, mother, your wife. What's going on here? Jesus is the one who taught that we are to honour our parents, fathers and mothers. Now he's saying hate them. Jesus is the one who said that we are to love our wife even as Christ loved the church. Now it's hater. Jesus loved children and he blessed them. Now he says, be prepared to hate them. Be reconciled to one another, to brothers and sisters. And now he says, he encourages hatred. Love your enemies, but hate your friends. Is that what he's talking about? The word hate is the word that troubles us. It's an accurate translation, but it comes from an Aramaic word, and my understanding is that the word hate in Aramaic doesn't mean to loathe and to desire to kill and to completely ignore and ostracize. It doesn't mean that. What it means is it's a comparative. To hate means to love less. So what Jesus is really saying, we have to love him more. Father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children. He's primary. He comes ahead of all of this. It's challenging. The time, if the situation does come for us, when you have to make a, ch a choice, and sometimes in life it does come, not often in the West, but it does, then the true disciple is one who will say, sweetheart, as much as I love you, you must understand that Jesus comes first and he always will. You come second. That's what a true disciple will say. Jesus first. Person comes and holds a gun to my wife's head and says, renounce Christ or I'll shoot her. What'll I say? See you in heaven. Jesus first. There are lots of implications 
for this for us as we think this through. And if you're not willing to say that or to choose that, you cannot, he says, be his disciple. He demands that kind of loyalty. We've got it reasonably easy here in the West when we ask someone to follow Jesus, but in other countries and in other cultures, when you ask a person to give up their sin and to come to Christ, then you're also asking them not only to give up their sin, but to give up their family. It goes with the deal. If you pick Jesus, we'll have nothing more to do with you. And people are picking Jesus. That's the sort of challenge that some people in the West are facing, in the world are facing. And the choice is the same for us, but the consequences are different. We have to be prepared to do that. It costs to follow Jesus, but it certainly costs a whole lot more not to. Jesus, I think, is deliberately trying to yank us out of our dream state. Do you fancy yourself to be my disciple? Do you think that you're following me? Do you call yourself a Christian? Well, the reality is that for some of us, we love our wives and our kids and our families more than we love Jesus. That's the reality. We put their development intellectually, athletically, artistically, socially, we put them ahead of our love and loyalty to him, ahead of their spiritual growth and development. We spend more time in the car driving the kids around to their school, their games, their lessons, their activities, whatever, than we do praying for them and intentionally discipling them. We clearly and obviously love our kids or our spouse or for some of us, our parents, more than we love God. Before you just reject that, just stop and think about it. Is that true? Because if it is, then you need to hear this verse. Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple. It's very simple. But if we make him central, if he is first, then we continue to do all of the things that we are doing, driving our kids around and loving them and caring for them and doing all of those things. But now you're doing it with him at the centre. Now you're doing it motivated by wanting to please and serve and honour him. James Dobson is the one who said, ask your children why you drive them to wherever. I thought that was a brilliant idea, so I did. I asked my kids, my daughter, when I was driving her to dancing or whatever it was, or my son to football, why am I driving you to here? I don't know. That's because I love you. I want the best for you. Oh. Sometimes you've got to point the obvious out to them. Dobson also said, when you discipline your kids, this is back in the ancient days when you could actually discipline kids. When you do that, ask them, do you know why dad, mum disciplined you? <laughs> no. And tell them. It's because I love you and I want the best for you. There is a right and a wrong way to go and you're going the wrong way. That's why I did it. Oh. Tell them. Help disciple them. Help them come to understand both your love for them and especially your love for Jesus. Do your children know that you love Jesus? Do your children think that you love Jesus more than you love them? You've heard me say this before. I used to say to my kids, and I still say it to my kids, and they're late 30s, 40. They know that their mother comes in my life before them. I'll do anything for my kids, anything I can do to help, but not at her expense. Whereas I will do anything for Jesus, even at her expense. I've said to my kids over the years, I raised them this way. I said, if we're in a boat and the boat's sinking, I'm not saving you, I'm saving your mother. 
I said it to my daughter when she tried to come between us and tried to play me off against Rhonda. You know, she came and asked me and I said, no. She went to mum to go, can we? And then, no. I dragged her into a room one day. I sat her down and I read her the right act. Don't you ever do that again. Don't you try and play one of us off against the other. We're in this together. If we're in a boat and we're drowning, I'm saving your mother, not you. You know, they gave my kids great security. <laughs> Because they knew that I was sold out and totally committed to this lady. That provided stable foundation for them. What it meant, as you've heard me say on numerous occasions, some of you, what that meant for one church member when I told this story to another church, that person came to me in the end. He said, you know what I learned from this morning's talk? I said, what? He said, don't get in a boat with you. You know, it's just a poor illustration, isn't it? The reality is Rhonda will try and save one and I'll try and save the other one, probably, after she's safe. Jesus first. Nobody else and nothing else. I can't illustrate it any other way than this. I do it often at the weddings that I perform. A triangle. God at the top, husband and wife at the other vertices. If you want to be close to your wife, the best way to be close to your wife is to be close to God. That's the best way. The perfect way is for both of you to be close to God because when you're close to God, guess what? You're close together. But if you go this way and you try to exclude God from your relationship and from your life and you turn to face each other and try to solve this by yourself and do it in your own strength, it won't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean that there aren't good, solid relationships that don't have God in their life. There are in God's goodness and providence. But the best way, include God in your life and relationship and you'll have a much better, safer marriage and parenting, and everything becomes, I was going to say easier. It makes a whole lot more sense because you're not doing it alone. In verse 27, at the end of verse 26, the Lord Jesus has said, not just to hate your mother and father, wife and kids, he also says, and hate your own life. Your dreams, your ambitions, your goals, your hopes, second, compared to, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's your will for my life? And Jesus expands that in verse 27. Whoever doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Cannot. A disciple is a person who is marked by, they hate their own life. They love less their goals and their ambitions. They're prepared to surrender it to Jesus. And they carry the cross. The cross is not some nice decoration. It's not an ornament. It's not a piece of jewellery, you all know that. The people who heard Jesus say this had seen people literally die on the cross, openly, publicly. And so what Jesus is saying, the cross is an instrument of execution, personal execution. Listen to this, a person who is nailed to the cross is facing one direction. So a disciple is facing one direction, to please and honour Jesus. A person who is nailed to the cross, their course is fixed it's determined often by another it's set i have decided to follow jesus it's set they have no further plans or intentions of their own they're nailed to the cross they're facing one way there's no turning back and they are elevated it's obvious to all that this person is being crucified. So as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, when you take up your cross, you're facing one direction. Your course is set. There are no plans or intentions to do anything else except follow him. And it'll be obvious to others. People will know that you are a disciple of Jesus by the choices you make. Discipleship is this series of deaths. 
on a daily basis. Take up your cross daily, Jesus says in Luke 9.23. We are to separate ourselves from what we want and to embrace what he wants. I know you've heard that. Have you thought about this? When you've come to the Lord, when you join the Lord's army, oh, this is the Baptist church, when you join the Lord's navy, you are not part-time. You're full-time. You're a full-time disciple. You are a part-time employee, even though you work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Full-time disciple who happens to be a teacher or a mechanic or a pastor. Full-time disciple. Part-time parent. Everything else is part-time. Flows out of my relationship of following Jesus. To the disciples, the Lord Jesus is saying in verse 27... Give me all of you. I don't want much of your time and some of your money and much of your work. I want you. All of you. Half measures are no good. I haven't come to torment yourself. I've come to kill it. Hand over the whole lot. You become mine. The reason the Holy Spirit became resident in us is he might be president of us. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a relational cost. And there is a personal cost. Verse 33, the Lord Jesus says, there is also a total cost. Those who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Fair income. Everything. You've got to give up everything. Count the cost. Jesus in this passage talks about a builder of a tower who doesn't complete it or a war between kings and he has to change his course of direction because he's hasn't calculated properly. He can't finish that which he starts. And that's Jesus' point. Don't start if you can't finish. Don't take on my name, say I'm a disciple, and then give up. It's bad publicity, bad PR. And of course, rivals to Jesus don't necessarily have to be people. It could be a business, it could be a home, it could be a hobby. We're to give up everything. Hand it over, leave it, renounce it. In Matthew chapter 13, there is a very provocative story. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, which the Lord Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like this. If you want to be part of God's kingdom, if you want salvation in Jesus, if you want to live under God's rule, this is what it's like. It's like a pearl merchant who went in search of a very expensive pearl, and he found it, found a pearl of great price. When he found it, he went home, he sold everything, and he came back and purchased it to get the price. Juan Carlos Ortiz tells this remarkable story, this conversation, how he imagined that conversation going once the merchant had found the pearl. <clears throat> is the pearl for sale? Yes, it is, but it's very expensive. How much is it? It's everything you own, everything you have. Well, I have thousands of dollars in the bank. Is that enough? Is that everything? Well, I have $150 in my wallet. Is that all? Where do you live? In a house. Well, that too. You mean I'll have to live in the caravan? We'll have to live in the caravan? There's a we? Who's the we? Well, there's my wife, her too, and the kids. Everything. And you've got a caravan, you mentioned. Yes, got a caravan. Well, that becomes mine as well. What else do you have? Do you have a car? Two. Motorbike? Yep. What about a bike? Yep. 
Now where am I going to put all of my clothes and shoes and TV and electronic devices? Where are my golf clubs going to go and my fishing lines? Where's my wife's sewing machine going to go and her vacuum cleaner? <clears throat> what about my library of books and all of that? Everything is mine. Everything becomes mine and you get the pearl. Your choice. Now listen carefully, the pearl merchant says. When you give me everything and I give you the pearl, I'm going to give these things back to you, but on condition, they're mine. I'm lending them to you. You get the pearl, you get the salvation, you get part of the kingdom of God, but whenever I ask you to give that up or hand that over or give that away, you do so. You don't own it. I do. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Everything we have, he owns. And we use it as his followers, as his servants for him. Discipleship in one word for me is this idea of surrender, submission. No one can certainly accuse the Lord Jesus of calling people under false pretenses. He never put any of this in the fine print. He was up front with it. When we say yes to Jesus as Lord, it's very unlikely that we'll be called to die. And it's very unlikely, not impossible, unlikely that he will say to us, sell everything. He did once to a rich young ruler. Go and sell everything that you've got, give it to the poor and then come follow me. And you know the story, he couldn't make that choice. He couldn't make the bargain. But that's the deal. If you can't do that, if you're not prepared to give up everything, you cannot be his disciple. They're strong words requiring strong commitment. And in our West, when we make that choice to follow him, as many of us have, you won't be called to die for him. Some have, most of us haven't. But we will be called to live for him, to die those daily deaths to self. General George S. Patton, Whoops, done that one. Once asked a soldier, private, what's the first duty of a soldier? Sir, the first duty of a soldier is to die for his country, General Patton said. No, you dummy, the first duty of a soldier is not to die for his country, it's to make the enemy die. The first duty of a soldier is to live for his country. What's the first duty of a disciple? To live for the Lord Jesus in every area, every day, in every circumstance. There was a church movement called the Moravian Church Movement, very early missionary church, very 100% sold out to missions. They, once in the early days, they've got a different one now, but the very early days, they had a symbol. Their church symbol was a flag, and on the flag, on one side, they had an ox on top of an altar being sacrificed, dying. On the other side, there was a picture of an ox, but with a plough, serving. Sacrifice or serving. And the motto across the bottom of the flag said, ready for either. What do you want me to do, Lord? Lay my life on the line for you? If persecution comes and I have to face that, so be it. To serve you, to do your will, not my will. So too for us. Nearly finished. The Lord Jesus, at the end of this passage, then has this strange paragraph until you think about it. 
He talks about salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, then what's the point of it? You have to throw it out. It's not good for anything. Chuck it on the manure heap. If you've got ears to hear, listen. It's that invitation by the Lord Jesus which should link together this statement about salt and all of these things he's been saying about discipleship. Salt is sodium chloride, and it's a very stable compound. It can't lose its saltiness in itself. But it can seem to because it can be diluted. It can be mixed with other things which cause it to lose its saltiness, its taste. Even so, in discipleship, just like salt can be compromised, diluted, so our commitment to Christ, to being a disciple, can be distracted. It can deteriorate. And then what happens? Well, if it becomes to the point where it's completely unusable, then it's set aside. If it just means that there is less fruit, then John 15 tells us there'll be a pruning process. What's the distinctive quality about salt? It's not its colour. Many things are white. It's not its texture. Many things are granulated. The distinctive thing about salt is its tang, its taste, its saltiness. What's the distinctive thing about discipleship? Submission. Surrender. My life handed over totally to him. I know you've heard it all before, but in this passage, the Lord Jesus is challenging us as a church and this year to focus on exactly this. If we want to be his disciples and we want to make disciples, then we are being commanded and directed to put him first. Unrivaled love, no one. We'll put no one before him. Unreserved commitment, including ourselves, on the cross daily. And unlimited ownership. There's no thing that we will not surrender to him. Let me finish with this. The, the Lord Jesus came to the Apostle Peter after he failed. And Peter had heard all of these challenges about what it meant to be a disciple. And Peter had failed by denying Jesus three times. And Jesus met with him and asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter, one point in the conversation, turns and says, what about him? To which Jesus says, whatever I'm going to do for him has nothing to do with you. You follow me. We need to follow Jesus regardless of what others do and regardless of what Jesus does in other people's lives. It's us following him. And then it's also regardless of our past. Peter has a past. He had failure. But the Lord Jesus is a person who takes discarded, broken things and fixes them. He restores them. The Lord Jesus can heal a broken heart, but he needs all of the pieces. The Lord Jesus can take a person who says, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I've got areas of my life which are not surrendered. He can take it and he can work with you until you come to the point of total, absolute surrender. He can give you forgiveness. It doesn't matter how deep into sin you've gone. It doesn't matter how smudged your soul is or how scarred your memories are. The Lord rescues, restores and forgives. Jesus says, those who come to me, I will not cast out. That's the invitation for you today. Come to the Lord Jesus. Is there any area of your life which is not surrendered to him? Come and talk to him about it. Surrender your life. Submit to him entirely. Let's be a church of disciples. Count the cost. And the cost is relational. 
him first. It's personal, not my will but your will be done, and it's total, everything I own. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the sovereign one. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And you have commanded us, go and make disciples. In order, Lord, for us to obey that, we need to be disciples. Most of us, if not all of us, Lord, have areas of our life which are not surrendered, not handed over, areas we're holding back. Lord, firstly, forgive us. And then can you assist us in releasing our grip on all of these things or relationships or our dreams and our hopes and handing it over to you and trusting you to work that which is best in our lives. We confess, Lord, it's because we don't trust you. It's because we don't love you that we hang on to these things. Once again, Lord, convict us and forgive us for doubting you and for not loving you. Soften our hearts, bend our wills, and help us to take this passage very seriously, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to take up our cross daily, and to surrender everything, everything we own to you. We ask and pray in your name, for your glory. Amen. Thank you.